have a Bible, just wave to one of the men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and they'll put one in your hand. It'll be marked to our passage we're studying today for your convenience. If you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today and take it home, study it. It is uh, no book like it in the whole world. Romans chapter 11, we come this morning to verse 33. Paul writes and declares, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgment and His ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become His counselor, or who, or who has first given to Him that it should be repaid to Him? For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen, which means so be it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you as always for your word. We thank you for the uniqueness of these handful of verses even in the whole Bible. And we pray that you would open them up to us and you would bless us, Lord, as we study your word and then partake of the Lord's Supper this morning. Pray for your Holy Spirit to be strong in and upon each of our lives as we continue with the desire just to bless you and to honor you, Lord, in this place, this place set aside unto you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The book of Romans breaks up into two major sections. Chapters 1 through 11 is theological, and it is deeply, deeply theological. And it's an examination of the gospel of God's provision of salvation to mankind and uh, provided to us in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this gospel and this salvation is received by putting our faith in Him and uh, trusting in Him for the forgiveness of our sins. Chapters 12 through 16 are uh, very, very practical. And uh, they instruct us now in terms of how the, all of the theology of chapters 1 through 11 should impact our lives as Christians, the kind of life that it ought to uh, produce in a practical level. It's fascinating and I think instructive to note that the Apostle Paul closes this very theological and doctrinal section of the book of Romans with a doxology. And a doxology is very simply a song or kind of an ode of praise and worship being directed toward uh, the Lord. And uh, we ask ourselves, what is the source and what is the foundation for this praise in Paul's heart? And it is the, what he has written of the gospel. It is not a doxology that closes chapters 9 through 11. It is a doxology that Paul brings the conclusion of chapters 1 through 11 to in, in, in his praise as he uh, offers it up to the Lord. Remember the Apostle Paul, when he wrote the book of Romans, he wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't the way that things would, people would put drafts together related to a, maybe writing a book today or even putting a sermon together today where you kind of read a bunch of things and you formulate a bunch of thoughts and then you write out uh, several rough drafts and then finally you get a finished draft and, and then you, you go with that. 
He is dictating the book of Romans to a secretary, a male secretary who was traveling with him. This is flowing out of his life by the Holy Spirit. This living description of the gospel from A to Z, head to toe. And finally, when he comes to the end of verse 32 in chapter 11, as he is absorbing it all at the moment himself, he knows these truths. But all of this put together in just exactly this same, the way that it is here and uniquely is in the book of Romans, as he is uh, listening to what it is that he is even dictating, he can't help but at this point in time uh, begin to praise the Lord and begin to thank Him for that gospel. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, a, an outburst of sanctified spiritual emotion. And you see the very first word that comes out of his mouth here in verse 33 is the word, oh. I mean, it just flows forth from him. The Apostle Paul was a theologian. I mean, he was the greatest theologian in the history of mankind, accepting Jesus. Everything is accepting Jesus. And the book of Romans, I think, is the capstone to uh, this fact concerning Paul. But it's very important to realize that Paul was not solely a a theologian. I don't even believe that he was supremely a theologian. At his core, at his deepest core, he was a worshiper and a worshiper of God. And we see this kind of thing throughout all of his writings, when he's writing these various epistles under the inspiration uh, of the Holy Spirit, and he's laying out these deep, wonderful truths of of God, and then suddenly he stops, not mid-sentence, but the end of some sentence, and he just begins to worship God in the midst of the writing. Examples of this in Ephesians chapter 3. Now unto him, he wrote, who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. He wrote to Timothy, his young protege, 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 17, now to the King eternal, speaking of the Lord, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And with the Apostle Paul, doctrine and theology, they weren't some uh, dry, merely academic thing as he studied them, as, as, he, as he put it forward. To him, these represented truths about God. They represented realities about God, the most important relationship uh, in, in his life. And as he wrote these epistles, he absorbed the implications of these things that he was writing about uh, uh, concerning God. And he was absorbing these truths in the context of his personal relationship with God. And, And all of this interaction that was going on between him and God and, and all of it. He recognized that it wasn't just words on a page, but that what he was writing, again, these spiritual realities, these theological realities, they weren't something just on a page. They were something that he recognized was now a part of his life because of Christ. These were things he recognized. These were things he had experienced. These things were a part of his daily portion uh, of, of his life. 
and, and, and he processed them with God himself as he wrote them, and, the, and again in the context of his very personal relationship with God. And when he finishes these first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, before he moves on to what all of this is supposed to look like in our lives as Christians, in chapters 12 through 16, he just stops to worship the Lord and to give Him praise and to give Him adoration for the salvation that He has just written about. And he not only wants that to be his experience, but it's included within uh, the book of Romans because he wants it to be our experience. At this point in the book of, in our reading and study of the book of Romans, that we do not move from all that's in chapter 11 into chapter 12 until there is time taken to set aside, <clears throat> excuse me, and absorb and to worship and praise God for all that uh, we've studied and all that we've looked at. And I think in all of this we see something in Paul that's very, very instructive for each of us as Christians. And that is the necessity of both a deep foundation in our lives as Christians, a deep theological foundation, a deep doctrinal uh, foundation, uh, a foundation that is very, very deep in the Word of God and in our relationship uh, with God. And, and then also with it, a deep and ongoing expression of worship directed to God in our relationship with Him. And there are two extremes, I think, that Paul models for us here that have to be avoided in our Christian lives in this regard. And Paul lived his life free of both of them. And the one thing that we don't want to head into is we don't want to have doxology without theology. We don't want to have praise and worship of God that is not founded in what we know about God, not founded in theology, the study of God, the truth of God, where here I might be very, very keen to praise Him and to worship Him, but I have very, very little interest, perhaps, in my uh, life, speaking hypothetically as a, as a Christian, in theology. It, I'm very disinterested in, in uh, uh, learning about God through the study of His Word. And the problem with this doxology without theology in that extreme uh, is that our worship must flow out of doctrine. And it must flow out of what we know to be true about God and what we know that He's like. Our worship must flow out of our understanding of God or else our worship is going to become the worship of a God I really don't know. And when I worship a God I really don't know, then I run the risk of my worship degenerating into idolatry to now where this singing section of the service or the worship section of the service and song is not really supremely about God, but it's about me, how it makes me feel, what it does for me. And it's very easy for worship to simply become and devolve and degenerate into the worship of worship, uh, of worship. and then worse yet, the worship of myself. 
and coming to a place where I judge uh, the worship and song section of the service on the basis of what it did for me or how good it made me feel, and not realizing that it really has nothing to do with me supremely, that it is all about Him, and it is honor and worship and adoration and glory that He is deserving of. And if it makes me feel good, then fine if it does. If it represents a sacrifice of praise related to my life, then it's just as well because it is for Him to bless Him, to thank Him, to ascribe worth to Him. The word, one of the words for worship in the Bible is proskuneo, uh, and it means to lean toward, to kiss, and that's what worship is. It is to bless God with a heart that is filled with gratitude and, and uh, love uh, directed toward Him. And I think that this is good to be reminded of every so often as Christians in the culture that we live in because our culture is so self-dominated that even the one place in the world that is to be distinctive from the world and that is the kingdom of God and the church as a representation of the kingdom of God it's very easy for this to become as much about I, me, myself, man-centered as everything else in the world is but this is a place to, to be set aside for God, the exaltation of God, the worship of God. And it is that that makes it distinctive in all of the world. And if it loses that distinction, then it becomes like everything else. It is salt that's lost its savor. And it's good for nothing to, but to be trodden under the foot uh, of man. The second extreme that we want to avoid is all theology and no doxology where we learn all about God from the Bible, but all that knowledge of God and, and the wonder of His works and who He is, it never translates into worship. It never translates into praise. And here is a relationship with God that is purely or at least largely academic. And, and it, and it, and it, but it doesn't adequately involve our hearts. It is all mind, but it is no heart as well. And the Apostle Paul was this wonderful combination of both theology and doxology, worship. And without both, he would, have, we, he would not be the great Apostle Paul that we recognize him in Scripture. It wasn't one or the other. It was both of these things that had this important place within his life and his relationship uh, with God. Now, surely it is a very, uh, generally, I think, a bad thing to dissect a, uh, a doxology. Uh, it's more to be sung than to be studied. But I do want us to notice a few things from this doxology before we partake of the Lord's Supper to merely kind of prime the pump of thanksgiving within our heart at this point in our study of the book of Romans. And so let's remind ourselves for a moment of what Paul is celebrating here in these chapters 1 through 11. He is celebrating the gospel. Gospel means the good news from God, the great news from God. He began the epistle in Romans chapter 1 verse 16 declaring, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
And the gospel is very simply God's offer. Imagine it. God's offer of salvation to His creation, to mankind. And without this gospel, there would be no forgiveness of our sins. We would never know uh, a relief from uh, the guilt within, within our lives. No solution to our guilt. Imagine living with all of the guilt of all of the sins of all of our lives without this gospel. There would be no power to live a godly life or a holy life. Without this gospel in human history, there would be no alternative to waking up every single day and living utterly dominated by the world and the flesh and, and uh, the devil. There would be uh, the, no, nothing within our power to resist the pull of those things. Without the gospel, there'd be no victory over death. There would be nothing to lift off the fear of uh, the bondage of the fear of death from our lives. There would be no hope concerning heaven after this life is over. We would never, without this gospel, be freed from the emptiness that we feel uh, apart from uh, a relationship with God, the emptiness and the meaninglessness of life lived apart from God. As Solomon wrote in the book of Ecclesiastes about a life lived at, at its highest, at its fullest, but without God. He said it's all vanity and vexation of spirit. It is all emptiness and it is frustration. Our lives without this gospel would be dominated by a deep, deep loneliness at our core because we have been created for a relationship uh, with God. No other relationship can fulfill that loneliness. And you just stop and think this morning as a Christian how that gospel has changed your life in all of these ways and more. And you remember in chapters 1 through 3, as Paul revealed that salvation is not received, uh, how it, 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 rather, Paul laid out for us how it is that every human being, Jew and Gentile, we all stand guilty and condemned by God and in need of salvation. And just take the briefest moment, even as a Christian here this morning, and remember the life that you once lived before becoming a Christian. Remember the person you were. Remember the person you would still be today, only far worse and far further down that road if it were not for the gospel. Think about the judgment that we deserved and the judgment that we narrowly missed because of the gospel. And then remember how Paul in chapters 4 and 5 revealed that salvation is not received on the basis of human effort or on the basis of, of uh, works, but by faith. And that like Abraham, justification occurs by faith. Salvation occurs on the basis of faith. And then stop and remember this morning, that moment when you heard the gospel in your history, and when you invited, were invited to trust Jesus as your Savior to receive God's salvation, and you did. 
Remember the place it occurred, whether it was in your home, in front of a television set with religious programming, in a church like this, on a street corner, in a workplace, in a dormitory, and remember what it felt like to be born again and to become a new creation, to become a new person, to become a miracle of the Holy Spirit. And then remember beginning to grow as a new Christian, as Paul lays all of that out in chapters 6 through 8. And remember when you learn that this gospel not only provides us with the forgiveness of sins past, but it provides us with the power to live a different life uh, today and a freedom from the power of sin. And it provides us with the power to live a victorious Christian life, as Paul laid it out in chapter 6. And then remember, I mean, remember when you heard that. You thought it was all the forgiveness of sins, but you found out it was about a life and a relationship with, with God. And then remember, if you're anything like the Apostle Paul, remember in those early days of your Christian life, now trying to live the Christian life in your own strength and in your own power and failing miserably as Paul brought out in chapter 7. And then remember in your own history when someone started to tell you about the Holy Spirit and the indispensable place that He plays in the Christian life. And remember being baptized with the Holy Spirit. Remember the new power that He brought into your life and the realization that this is something altogether new that has come from God. There is no other explanation for the quality of the life that you were living was that other than that the Holy Spirit brought this power into your life. And with that power, the love and the strength and needed to live the life and the hunger for God and the boldness that came from that filling of the Holy Spirit. And on and on and on we could go concerning these 11 chapters. But like the Apostle Paul, <clears throat> this isn't merely theology. These are things that we have experienced ourselves and each and every one of them in and of themselves is a cause for praise and worship to be directed toward God. And to just stop and think about your personal history with all that Paul has written in chapters 1 through 11. These are not abstract truths. These are things that are true of every single Christian. And when we stop and think about that, there's a hallelujah within our heart by the Spirit of God that must come out if we allow this truth to then interact with uh, the Holy Spirit and in our inner man, our spiritual man. Uh, hallelujah for our justification, our sanctification, and just as surely one day our coming glorification. And Paul is revealing that it is in this salvation that the height and the depth and the breadth, as he declares it in verse 33, of God's wisdom, of God's knowledge, of His judgments, of His ways are demonstrated. And yes, His wisdom, His knowledge, His judgments, His ways are revealed in the creation of all things. 
But the ultimate expression of these things by God and about God, His wisdom and knowledge and judgments and ways are not revealed in creation. But Paul is declaring they are supremely revealed in our salvation. The creation of all things was absolutely effortless for God. It didn't test Him in any way. It didn't require any sacrifice of Him. It wasn't personally costly for Him to speak the heavens and the earth into existence. The much harder thing to accomplish was our salvation from the consequences of our sins. This required redemption. And the release is redemption means upon the ran- payment of a ransom. And this redemption that God has provided to us, this salvation, it required a sacrifice. And not just any sacrifice uh, that we could provide for ourselves, but a sacrifice that only God could provide. And the ultimate sacrifice, a sacrifice that amazingly involved the Godhead itself. A sacrifice that involved the only begotten Son of God. And then notice Paul's celebration in verse 33, his gratitude for the wisdom, the knowledge, the judgments, and the ways of God expressed in our salvation there in verse 33. He celebrates the depth of God's wisdom revealed in our salvation. For example, the divine wisdom that was required in order to provide a salvation that allows a perfectly holy and righteous God to justify sinful man and yet remain just in doing so. And that was no easy thing for God to accomplish. And we couldn't have figured that out on our own if we had a million lifetimes. Only God had the wisdom uh, to produce the, the gospel and to produce the salvation that we enjoy. And Jesus was born into this world, and He was born into the world fully God and fully man, the product of a miracle of the Holy Spirit in the life of Mary. And the reason He came into the world fully God and fully man was because both His humanity and His deity were required in our salvation. It was His deity, His sinlessness, that uniquely qualified him to pay the price for the forgiveness of our sins. But it was his humanity that allowed him to die in order to pay the price for our sins. Paul celebrates in verse 33 the depth of God's knowledge as it's revealed in this salvation. This knowledge does not speak of our knowledge of God but it speaks of God's knowledge of us. And the wisdom of God's plan of salvation came out of His knowledge, His perfect knowledge of everything that we needed salvation to be as sinners. And you look at the salvation that Paul has described in these first 11 chapters, and as it's described in the entire uh, Bible, And look and see if that salvation isn't a perfect match 
for every need that we have as a fallen descendant of Adam and Eve and as, as a sinner. It addresses every need that we have. It overwhelms every spiritual need that, that we have concerning our past and our present and our future. And Paul is declaring in some sense that only our Creator could have known us so well to have known the depth of our need and then to provide for that need so perfectly. When he celebrates the judgment, the depth of God's judgments revealed in our salvation, that word judgments here, it doesn't speak of God's condemnation, but it speaks of his actual decision to save us. God could have possessed all of the wisdom he could have possessed all of the knowledge in terms of what would be required in order to save us and then never have committed to actually doing so. But he did so, and this was his judgments, his decision to do so. And, and love, and only a God of love would have been willing to sacrifice His Son in order to save sinners, hopeless sinners, helpless sinners like you and me. He celebrates the depth of God's ways revealed in our salvation. And the word ways there, it speaks of roads, it speaks of paths, and He speaks of these ways as being past finding out. In other words, He's saying that God not only conceived such a marvelous gospel and a marvelous salvation. But he then made the decision to save us. And then, and then having made the decision to save us, he then actually did it. He then actually pulled it off. And it's been well said concerning the gospel and concerning Christianity as a whole that man couldn't have come up with it if he would and he wouldn't have come up with it if he could. And it's absolutely true. All glory belongs to God. All glory belongs to God for this good news, this gospel that exists in human history. And when Paul speaks here in verses 34 and 35 as a part of his doxology, he quotes from Isaiah, from Jeremiah. He quotes from the book of Job. And you notice he asks a series of three questions from these Old Testament passages. Number one, who has known the mind of the Lord? Number two, who has become his counselor? And third, who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid? And the answer to all three of those questions is no one. And while the, the, that is true of any area in life, or it, it is true in any area of our relationship with God, the point that Paul is making in this context is that concerning the gospel, concerning salvation, we cannot improve upon it as human beings. It is absolutely perfect as it is. We cannot improve upon it by adding anything to it, by adding our traditions, by adding our legalisms uh, to it, uh, the necessity of being baptized in order to be saved, or speaking in tongues, or keeping the sacrifices. And we cannot improve upon it by taking anything away from it. Though many people attempt to improve on it by doing exactly that. Many people who uh, consider themselves to be Christians. 
And they deny the virgin birth, the resurrection, the reality of judgment in hell. They deny the need to be born again and so forth. And in every case, far from improving upon the gospel, all they do is mar the gospel and then leave human beings uh, continuing to be marred as a result of, of destroying the gospel and making it less than what it is and what it needs to be in our lives. And then notice finally in verse 36, Paul declares uh, and says, For of him and through him and to him are all things. All things are of him. That is, he is the source of all things. That is true of everything. But it is true of our salvation, the entire plan of salvation. He says all things are through him. That is, that he sustains all things. He declares all things are to him. In other words, he is the goal of all things in life. There is what is known as the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and it puts this absolutely perfectly. And the catechism reads, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. You could get the same catechism encapsulated perfectly and the song of the 24 elders to the Lord Himself in that heavenly scene in Revelation chapter 4, where they sing, For Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure we are and were created. And if you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, because you have been created for a relationship with God supremely, that is the meaning and the purpose of your life. You will never be satisfied or fulfilled in life until you are engaged in that relationship with God. And if you'd like to begin that relationship with God this morning, all that is required is to just simply repent, turn from your sin, and to trust in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins and be born again, be born spiritually as a miracle of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, this is my last finally. I gave you an earlier finally. But finally in verse 36, Paul says, to whom be glory forever Amen. And Paul didn't stop and ask himself now in this doxology, what would be a great way to close uh, this doxology? No, Paul, as he's writing here, since all of these things are true, all 11 chapters worth, he declares that he is, the Lord is forever worthy of our worship and our praise. And so he is. And this morning we want to, as a part of our service, as a time of reflection upon these 11 chapters and our personal experience with the 11 chapters to just stop now and to give Him praise and worship as we partake of the Lord's Supper. Remembering all of the magnificence of the salvation, to be sure, but then to remember the one 
who was willing to pay the price in order to make all of this possible. All of this could have been known. All the way of salvation could have been established and would have done us no good except that there was a father who was willing to send his son and a son who was willing to come into this world in order to provide salvation to you and uh, to me. And so a time to just stop and to remember the Lord Jesus uh, himself. And as the men would come forward now to serve the Lord's Supper and the worship team would come forward, we will pass the bread first and then the cup. And as the bread is passed, simply take uh, one uh, of the cracker and then hold it. And then we will pray together and we will partake together. And the same thing related to, uh, to the cup. If you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, what I'd like you to do is just to continue to enjoy the service. Uh, the great thing that you could do is just say, I put my faith in you, Jesus, for the forgiveness of my sins, and then partake of the Lord's Supper with us. But if you're not ready to do that, you should not partake of the symbols of Jesus' body and His blood given for the forgiveness of your sins until you have received that forgiveness. And I want you, the first time that you partake of the Lord's Supper, for you to partake of it uh, in that spiritual condition and relationship with God. And so just let the tray pass and, and, uh, uh, and then uh, if you're not willing to receive the Lord here prior to partaking of the Lord's Supper, then to speak to us afterwards. We'd love to pray with you uh, to begin that relationship with God uh, this morning. And so, Mike, would you lead us in worship as we consider this salvation, but then the Savior who is behind this salvation?